Thank you for downloading this podcast on 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. All right, 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. Thank you very much for staying with us. We go to Chris in the UK. Good morning, Chris. Whoa, it's a chilly one here. Oh, Good morning, Reedy. Oh, shame. Oh, it's really cold. I'm in a, I'm in a summer dress, which also feels too heavy. And Thomas is wearing shorts. I'm sorry, Chris. Thomas said he couldn't complain, so I'm feeling good today. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, like it's the first I've time he said it to phrase you. Phrase <laughs> of the week. Yep, he did. I missed it the first time and I complained. And I complained that I couldn't complain. And uh, <laughs> he said I can't complain. He loves saying that. No, I'd, I'd love to have some of that lovely weather because it really is bone-chillingly cold. It's uh, about three degrees and it's this horrible icy rain coming down, which is almost freezing the minute it lands. I'm thinking, oh, anything to be somewhere other than here. Mm-mm. And it, I mean, this is normal for that time of the year, uh, Chris, isn't it? Or is, is it also likely yeah, to get colder? Yeah, I mean, colder, you know, yeah? th- this is this is what we would expect. So this this reminds us that we do have this thing called summer. Um, it may not appear to be it, but it apparently does happen. And this is to teach mm-hmm. us that that there is a slightly warmer time of year than this. Okay. Well, good luck. I hope you survive it. Let's talk about this magnetic fish, uh, uh, Chris. What do you have for us? Well, I selected this because it's a, it's a Christmas story and it is almost Christmas time. It's a paper which has been published from Prague from uh, Vlastimil Hart, who's a researcher at the Czech University of Life Sciences in Prague. And what he and his colleagues have been doing is looking at carp. Now, there's a tradition going back many years in the Czech Republic and, in fact, most of Eastern Europe since the Roman times because the Romans loved carp. They were a delicacy. And so at Christmas time in the Czech Republic, people go to markets and they buy fresh carp, which are sold alive on the market. And people take them home and either obviously eat them, or in some cases they let them go into rivers and streams and things as a sort of gesture of good luck. Mm-hmm. And so this group decided to have a look at the behavior of these fish in the market. And they went to, I think, probably about 25 or so locations, so 25 different markets, and they looked at 80 different barrels of fish, took lots of pictures of them, and then got people to look at which direction the fish were pointing in the barrels. And in this PLOS One paper this week, they show that overwhelmingly the fish in these barrels and all these different markets around the Czech Republic are all pointing north to south. Mm-hmm. And carp are not migratory fish like salmon are. We know that some fish have iron deposits in their nose, which is probably how they can sense the Earth's magnetic field and line up. Carp aren't migratory like salmon, but they do nonetheless clearly have this ability to sense magnetic fields and react to them. And the researchers point out at the end of the paper that there's a number of reasons why they might do this, partly because aligning themselves in this way probably makes it easier for the fish to to then form groups or schools which can then all swim around together but also they can probably use it as a sort of internal compass to find their way around especially if they're living in very murky rivers and streams so a christmas tradition turns into a new piece of research Ah, very very exciting indeed all right let's go to the lines and uh on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702 we're taking your sms's on 31702 and 31567 louise and parkwood Good morning. Mm. I want to know from the naked scientist why people have wax in their ears. Where does it come from? Why do some have more than others? And just general general question about the wax. 
Hello, Louise. Hi. Well, the posh medical term for earwax is cerumen, C-E-R-U-M-E-N, and this is a material which is made by secretory cells which are in the surface of the eardrum and the ear canal, so the external auditory canal, which is the bit you can put your finger into. The role of earwax, which is actually genetically determined in terms of its consistency, let me qualify that, there are different genes that affect the composition of earwax and people who live in the eastern parts of the world, so China, Asia, they have a tendency towards a drier form of earwax. People who live in the western world tend to have a tendency towards wetter ear earwax and there are genes that can be used to pinpoint whether or not you have dry or wet earwax and this is actually being used to probe the migrations of early peoples. There are various scientists around the world extracting DNA from mm. old specimens in archaeological digs and some of the genes they're finding show whether or not these people had dry or wet earwax tendencies and this tells you where they migrated from or at least it ad adds evidence to that. The role of earwax is there to soak up nasty stuff, uh, foreign bodies, debris and to stick to it, including viruses and other things like microorganisms. And then the idea is that the earwax slowly migrates its way out of the ear and falls out, and that way it helps the ear to clean itself. doesn't always work like that, though. And in some, some cases, you get a very thick, impacted cerumen, and it can actually occlude the ear canal and make hearing difficult. And one of the reasons why some people struggle to hear sometimes is because they've got a build-up of lots of wax in their ear. And that's where the whole idea of softening it with a little bit of olive oil or something and then trying to hose it out mm. can actually work. It doesn't taste very nice, though. That's the other thing about earwax. Most people would say, tastes pretty ghastly. Why is that? Well, probably because it's got a lot of these other waxy chemicals in it, which How tend to be fairly unpleasant tasting. Chris. <laughs> My stomach is churning. How would I know I know what it tastes like? Have you never tasted earwax? No! <laughs> oh, how weird are you? No, Chris! <laughs> Oh, no, I can't recover after that. All right, I'm just imagining this person just delving into the earwax. <laughs> okay, um, you know, if you get a peanut stuck in your ear, one way to get that out is you, you dribble in some molten chocolate, let it go hard, and then the nut comes out a treat. <laughs> we need someone else to take over the show. I can't do this. All right, let's go to Sue. Sue, you are calling us from Bryanston. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, everybody. Um, I wonder if you could help me, please. I have a condition called CIDP, okay? I've had it for the past, oh, I suppose, six years. I seem to have exhausted the, the various treatments that are prescribed for this condition. And I just wondered um, if there was any prognosis. Is it, does it ever get better? Will I ever be able to hop, skip, jump and dance? That's my question. Okay, Sue, can I just check that by CIDP you're referring to chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy? That's exactly it. Hmm. Okay. Um, this is uh, an unusual condition. I've seen a couple of patients when I was doing a neurology job in London with this, and the way that we used to treat them was to get them into hospital every couple of months, and we would give them an infusion of what's called human normal immunoglobulin. These are antibodies which have been made from healthy members of the population, so you do a, effectively a bloodletting on large numbers of people and you take the antibodies out of their blood and concentrate them into a bag and you give those antibodies to the people with CIDP and 
it helps their inflammatory problem. This is some kind of immune inflammation in the nervous system which can cause muscle weakness and it can cause some sensory problems and people say that if they have antibodies coming in like this it helps to mitigate the problem but we really don't understand very much about it and it seems to have this sort of relapsing and remitting course over long periods of time and in some people it, it never gets any better in some people it just burns itself out and goes away but it's a very poorly understood and quite rare condition Okay, uh, thank you very much for calling us, Sue. Let's go to, um, is it Paul? Paul, you're calling us uh, from Benoni, hey? Yeah, good morning, Rudy. Uh, good morning, Chris. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> according to an American professor named Bruce Lipton, uh, genes have an ability to rewrite their own genetic code, uh, which is influenced by signals they receive from the surrounding environment. And he claims that random mutation is not the steering mechanism for evolution. Uh, would you have any comment on that? Hello, Paul. I hadn't heard that particular theory, um, which is not to say it's not um, a valid one. I just hadn't come across it. Um, okay. what, what I think we, we do know pretty well about the way in which evolution appears to work is that there are random mistakes made when genes copy themselves and this creates a whole range of different potential genetic forms of an organism or group of organisms and those which then are most successful under the environment in which they find themselves then get selected. I mean, that's evolution by natural selection. That's the sort of tenet of what Darwin was putting forward. You're going a slight step further saying that genes may be able to influence their own changes and i suppose in some ways that um you could you could regard cancer as doing that because what's happening with a cancer is that the genes that normally control the integrity of your genetic information there are genes that repair dna they mm -hmm. wander along your dna looking for mistakes and putting them right part of cancer is that those repair enzymes go wrong and this means that then other parts of your genome start to accumulate changes or damage which they wouldn't normally do because that damage would be repaired and the cells also lose the ability to destroy themselves if they become dangerous. Again, keeping in the population of cells, in this case, gene changes that shouldn't normally be there. So I suppose in some respects you could regard malignancies and cancers and those sorts of genetic abnormalities as sort of related to, to what you're suggesting. But I haven't come across the work of Bruce Lipton. I'll go and look it up and uh, maybe I could take a look at that in the meantime and come back to you in a week or so if that's okay. Thank you very much, Paul. Is that acceptable? All right. Thank, thank you. you. Stuart and Michael, I see you coming back in a moment. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 13 minutes to 10 o'clock, and we're taking your questions for Chris. Let's go to Stuart and Michael. I'm coming to you next. Hi there, Stuart in Edenvale. Hi, guys. Mm. Um, I'm partial to a banana in the morning, so I buy a <laughs> packet of six or seven. Uh -huh. But if you leave them out, you can only eat three or four of them at the best. But if you put them in the refrigerator, and it says in the package not to put them in the refrigerator, but if you do, the same thing happens. You can eat about three or four of them. But if you put them in the fridge, and this is what I do, in, in a brown paper packet, you can eat all six or seven of them, and they're all quite nice and fresh. Oh, Brian, I should do that, because, Stuart, me and Ooh. bananas, we get along very well. <laughs> 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 so I'm just trying to get my head around this. So if you put them into the fridge and they're open, then they, they 
will go off too quickly. Whereas yes. if you put them into the fridge all together but in a brown paper bag, then they don't go off. Yes, I, I use a brown paper bag, but I, I, I don't know if the colour of the bag has got anything to do with it. I wouldn't no, I that. wouldn't have thought the, ba the paper bag no. did, but that's intriguing. I don't know the answer. How are you defining going off? Are you saying that they're going all nice and black and brownie Brown. and not terribly well, appetising looking, or, or are you referring to the actual texture of the, the, the flesh of the fruit inside the peel? If you leave them out, mm. uh, out of the brown paper bag, they go very soft and they turn black and brownish. Mm. And if you put them in the fridge without the brown paper bag, they go um, brown and very soft. But if you put them in the in the paper bag, they do go off in colour. But the 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 actual flesh of the of the uh, of the banana is quite edible. Oh, okay. Uh, then I'm going to have to take a rain check, I'm afraid, because I don't well, I know why that would uh, do that. Um, yeah, you can have a prize. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's too cheeky. Uh, what, whatever it is. Bananas. Um, I'll have a, a think about that. I'm, I'm not a banana expert. I'll have a think about that because there might be something quite clever and subtle going on. There, there are various chemicals that come out of bananas, and bananas produce huge amounts of the gas ethene. And ethene is a ripening agent. It's what fruit use to make themselves go ripe. So if you have some unripe tomatoes and you put them in your fruit dish next to your bananas, then your tomatoes will go ripe beautifully quickly. People often use this as a trick to ripen up fruits into a consistent ripeness. You put some bananas in a nice drawer or something and you get local concentrations of ethene. But why putting them together in a bag like that should make a difference, I don't know. So I'm going to have a think and ask some, some fruitologists if that's <laughs> all right. I've got some friends who do these sorts of wacky things and we'll see if they've got any theories. Yeah. And Stuart, like I said, I love bananas. I eat a banana first thing in the morning as well. So I'm going to experiment with that because it's been a frustration of mine that they go off and they turn brown and black. I'm going to try this and see what happens. I'll give you feedback. Thanks so much for an interesting question. Michael in Kailami. Good morning. Yes. My question is, why when you pour boiling water, it sounds different to when you pour cold water? Mm. Hello, Michael. The Morning. reason for this is because of the viscosity. A good way to demonstrate this um, for people at home is when you turn the shower on. If you turn the shower on and you first run cold water and listen to the sound of the water splashing into the shower tray, when the hot water comes through, and you can often use this as a sort of audio sign that the warm water is now through and you can get into the shower without getting freezing cold, the sound will, set, will, will have subtly changed. You can also do it with a, a mug of boiling water. If you pour it into the sink, it sounds different and tends to be higher frequencies than if you pour in cold water. And the reason for this is that when you make the water hot, it becomes less viscous. In the same way as when you take your cooking oil and it's initially in the cooking oil bottle and it's quite thick. When you heat it in the pan, it very quickly becomes runny because you're giving the molecules a lot more energy because they're at a higher temperature. So they're moving around more vigorously and the associations or bonds between them, because they have more energy, are easier to break and they don't stick together so hard so the water flows more easily and if it flows more easily it can fragment and and break part more easily and so it has a higher frequency when it splashes into things and little particles go pinging off and hitting things and making them ring so it's down to the viscosity which is lower at high temperature all right uh thank you very much Ma what, what's this sorry 
My cup of tea will taste nicer next time. <laughs> Another little trick you can do, actually, have a go at this one and maybe have a think about why this might happen and maybe you can call us next week and see if you've solved it. If you take your cup of tea or coffee and stir it with the spoon and stir it really hard you'll f and tap the spoon on the side of the cup, you'll find that when you first tap the spoon on the side of the cup, it has a high frequency, ding, 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 and as you stir it hard, then uh, the frequency will drop and it will go ding, 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 ding. Why is that? See if you can work it out. <laughs> okay, let us know, Michael. I have a question here via SMS. Sibonelo wants to know, why are our arteries red but appear green from outside the skin? I think it means veins or, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, why do veins? Because if you look at, um, this, this is particularly relevant in people who have paler skin because you can see this effect more prominently. But why is it that the veins look a bluey colour under the skin? Yet, whereas if you were to stick in a needle and take out some blood, the blood is very red in there. So why should red blood make veins look blue? Well, it's certainly true that the veins contain blood which is a little bit darker than arteries because veins are taking blood back towards the heart from the tissues and therefore it contains slightly less oxygen. And when the haemoglobin gives up oxygen, it does change its shape very slightly and this does make it a slightly darker red, but certainly not blue. So why does it look blue under the skin? Well, this is actually a trick. And the reason for this is that when light goes into the skin, blue light gets absorbed by the surface layers of the skin and scattered away very efficiently. But red light goes very deeply into the skin. So the light that's coming back to your eye from where there is a vein under the skin is principally red light, and the red light that hits the skin around the vein is going to come bouncing back to you uh, intact, whereas the the red light that has gone into the vein will actually be seeing some slightly darker blood. So your eye is seeing slightly darker red light coming from the place where the vein is. And because of a phenomenon called colour constancy, the eye regards a darker red next to a lighter red as looking a bluey purple colour. So your eye thinks it's seeing a purple vein or a bluey vein when it's not. And in fact, you can do this experiment because if you cut open yourself, you would see the veins are not blue at all. And there was a gentleman in Germany who did a very interesting experiment a few years ago where he took a pretend blood vessel and filled it with blood and he had it in a bath of milk and he could reduce or, or lower the pretend blood vessel into the tube of milk different distances and you could s show that when it was at the surface of the milk which scatters blue light away in the same way as your skin does that's why he was using milk you could see that it looked red at the surface and as it went deeper into the milk it suddenly started to look blue nothing has changed apart from the amount of light which is getting to the pretend blood vessel and being reflected back to your eye and it's all a trick of color constancy Okay, Chris, I have a question for myself. What, what, is, what is coactation of the aorta? Uh, coactation mm -hmm. of the aorta is an embryological condition where there's a narrowed point in your aorta, your body's major blood vessel. Okay. So if you imagine your heart, and out of the top of your heart comes the main artery that's going to supply your body, that artery goes upwards and then loops round through 180 degrees and then goes right down the middle of your body to then branch out to supply everything else in your body. And at a point just after where it has bent round through 180 degrees, there is a connection called the ductus arteriosus. Now, when you were a developing baby, this is the connection that enabled you to bypass your lungs. And um, and it, it was a, a connection for blood to flow straight across into the aorta. 
and this narrows the minute you're born. It closes off. And when it closes off, the tissue that does, that does this closing off phenomenon, it's not the lungs, I'm sorry, it is actually the umbilical return from your um, placenta. Um, when this closes off, it probably does it by using cells that are sensitive to oxygen. And one theory is that there is an aberrant migration of these cells into the wall of the aorta. And so instead of just this ductus closing off, actually what also closes off is a little bit of the aorta. So it squeezes or pinches in. And as a result, you've got a narrowed point in your aorta. And so you have very high blood pressure above the narrowing and lower blood pressure below the narrowing. And you can sometimes pick this up because people can have different blood pressures in their two arms and also have different blood pressures elsewhere in the body downstream of this problem. And it can put quite a lot of strain on the heart, but it can be fixed. And um, sometimes mm. in some people it does absolutely no harm whatsoever. Lovely chatting to you again. Uh, Chris, keep warm. Stay out of the cold. We'll chat to you next I'll week. I'll do my best. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. And don't forget that our conversation with Chris will be available as a podcast.